Ed, thank you so much for joining us on East Coast Breakfast and making the time on a cold Saturday. Pleasure, Terence. No problem. So how did you get involved with this show in particular? Well, in a kind of somewhat sort of prosaic manner, um, my agent emailed me, which is quite often how these things begin, and said, listen, have a look at this project, see if you like it, and we'll talk. And so uh, I think they sent me the first four episodes. And yeah, it just really grabbed me. And, you know, my criteria for when um, choosing the jobs I want to do, my criteria are pretty simple really um if i believe the story and i believe the character and i feel a connection to the character uh and the kind of final thing really is uh when i read the script there are there's always one or two moments where what i refer to as bumps like a bump in the road or something where you just kind of think hmm yeah, I'm just going to have to have a look at that and figure out why it's making me feel that way. And it might be me, it might be the script, but I'll have to figure that out. And the fewer the bumps, the more likely it is that I'll want to do it. And, and Trackers had very few bumps, so, yeah. So were you sent the, the actual screenplay or were you sent Dion May's book? No, I was sent the screenplays, um, but I then found a copy of the book. Yeah, so I read the book. Um, I mean, I don't always, if there's a source material, I don't, necessarily as a rule read it I probably incline towards reading it um but I wanted to just you know actually reading the book I found very very helpful because probably more than any other character I think people who are familiar with the book who then subsequently watch the show um I think probably Lucas is the character who changes the most between book and screen but it so that was actually particularly helpful for me to get an insight into how Dion saw this character And so then I kind of slightly took it upon myself to sort of meld the two um, versions of Lucas. Lucas in the book, Lucas on the page in the script. And yeah, as it were, sort of take the most interesting and or beneficial elements from both and try and weave them together. So you're obviously playing Lucas Becker, Lucas Vilkay, so he's not South African. Um, How did you prepare for this role? Um, I mean, I, quite, I, I tend to do a kind of certain amount of research. Um, and part of his background is in the US military. So I just kind of read some stuff, looked back at one or two projects like Generation Kill, which I'd seen before, just to kind of... It's, it's just kind of like filling in the background, really, so that there's kind of some depth um, Mark Rylance, who people, I'm sure they know who he is now, wonderfully, if, you, if I'd said that five years ago, most people would have gone, who the hell is Mark Rylance? And that's one of the wonderful things about this world. Um, now everyone knows who Mark Rylance is, as it should be. Um, Mark Rylance has this great phrase, turning the soil. So as part of your kind of preparation and ongoing work in playing a character, he said, you've got to turn the soil. And, you know, it's a good analogy because, you know, if I can wax lyrical for a moment, you know, playing a character, creating a character is a little bit like kind of planting a seed and, you know, nurturing this plant as it grows and da 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 And part of that is turning the soil. But in order to turn the soil, you've got to have a depth of soil. And so that's important for me that I feel that he's kind of grounded in some sort of reality, um, which I often will flesh out for myself just for my own benefit. Um, then obviously I kind of, you know, worked on the accent um, to kind of decide where we would place his accent. You know, was he going to be Texan or was he going to be Midwestern or was he going to be East Coast or whatever? Then you're just kind of 
I mean, I quite like putting myself in the hands of the writers, really, and just um, committing to, you know, committing to actually not necessarily committing um, in a, you know, in a kind of passive way to the writer's vision in a collaborative way. So, you know, we kind of come at it together. I'm always happy when the writer's around so we can talk stuff through because there's always things I have roiling around in my head. And then, I mean, this project is pretty unique in my experience because probably nearly 90% of my work on the project is with one character, with Miller. And so obviously then that's going to be pretty critical. You know, you hope that the person you're working with, you know, is going to be just someone who you like because that's helpful, um, but also someone who is smart and uh, generous in their work and likes to collaborate and likes to, you know, be connected on set. And yeah, thankfully, Rolanda was all those things. So I got lucky. So what was your experience like working with uh, not just the South African crew, um, but also South African actors? Fantastic. I mean, I, I've had a great time and uh, I've got a lot of admiration um, for the crew you know crews you know it kind of it, to outsiders and to some extent this is true um, it's a kind of ridiculous way to earn money you know making films and television and stuff um, but actually the crews work incredibly hard you know they you know they work 80 hour weeks week in week out some of them work many more than 80 hours a week um they're constantly having to kind of you know think on their feet and improvise to get us through and these guys were fantastic and they never flagged and they were always enthusiastic and always professional and um and as i say i mean apart from rolanda i mean is that true i mean Tapello like chases me <laughs> at, various, at various points um they were the crew uh, the cast were delightful and um, just really easy to be around. Um, and uh, yeah, and as I say, you know, Rolanda was a pleasure to work with. It, was it your first time working in South Africa? It was my first time working in South Africa, yes. Um, I'd wanted to come here for a long time, uh, which I guess actually was another added attraction to the project. Um, I came to South Africa 25 years ago when I was a student, uh, albeit very briefly, I was actually on my way to Zimbabwe and Malawi, but for some reason I flew into Joburg, so I had a few days in Joburg. Uh, but uh, I was very happy to spend some time here and get familiar with the country. I have a couple of friends in the industry who I've worked with in Europe who are based in Cape Town, so I was able to see, you know, see those guys, hang out a bit. And um, yeah, I've tried to see as much of Cape Town and its environs as I can. And yeah, it's, I love it. I really do. So have you just been in Cape Town? Have you seen the rest of the country? I've only been in Cape Town. Um, the show itself was up in the Karoo, the Limpopo. Uh, I don't get involved in any of that. My character doesn't do any of that stuff. So no, I've just been in Cape Town. And I mean, did I even shoot outside of Cape Town? I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, everything I shoot, it's almost entirely been on location. And Lucas's story remains contained within Cape Town. So I too have remained contained in Cape Town. So, you know, I've, I've been going through your, your body of work and it's so vast and varied. You've worked on stage and film, television. Um, what for you stands out as um, something that's really stuck with you, um, something that you more naturally gravitated towards? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I sort of joke that, and of course, like all good jokes, there's more than a grain of truth in it. I'm actually happiest playing characters like who have a sort of stutter and a limp. <laughs> um, I, li I like playing tortured characters. I genuinely do. 
Um, in part, you know, because like I was saying earlier about, you know, Mark Rylance and the soil, um, the more depth there is to the character, the more complexity, the more subtext, the more conflict, the more attrition, I find it easier. It's easier to play. There's more for me to work with. Um, you know, what we're all trying to do is, you know, drop into this truthful place for a short period of time, or if you're on stage for a couple of hours, three hours, something. But, you know, you want it to be real. You want it to be truthful. You know, we're not pretending. So the more colors there are in the palette and the more materials for me to work with, the easier it is for me to attain that feeling of truthfulness and the kind of more sturdy and deep that truthfulness is. So, um, yeah, I mean, if you look at my CV, you know, like on stage, so I've played like Hamlet, check, uh, Constantine the Seagull, check, uh, both those guys die, <laughs> sorry, spoiler alert, uh, Tom Wingfield in the Glass Menagerie, uh, Tortured Soul, um, you know, and and on screen as well, you know, um, uh, you know, characters like Tchaikovsky. Yeah, uh, those are the kind of characters I'm drawn to. So Lucas was actually a bit of an anomaly for me because he's sort of quite a cool customer. Um, although actually things become much more chaotic as his storyline goes on. Um, so actually this was kind of quite a nice departure for me. So, you know, Hilary Swank said that she's drawn to these real tortured characters because she herself is a little tortured, um, but she does find that it stretches her right. as an actor. Um, do you find that? Yeah, I'm not going to compare myself to Hilary Swank, but um, who is amazing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes I come across actors, I work with actors, and like, it, it seems to not cost them anything to do their job. Uh, you know, naming no names, you know, there are some actors who are like texting as the camera turns over and then they just kind of pass their phone or put it in their pocket or something and then just stop playing the scene. And I'm like always a slack jawed when I see that. I don't know how they do that. I can't do that. Um, it really costs me. I mean, not in a kind of precious way. It's just that I remember working with director once, you know, and he really put me through the mill, but I'm really grateful to him. And I remember we shot this scene and it was tough and he was really pushing me and we finally got to where we wanted to get to. And he kind of said, you know, good, well done. He said, it's not supposed to be easy. And he wasn't an easy guy, but in that moment, he was so kind of supportive of me, which really, but I'll never forget it. He said, it's not supposed to be easy. Who said it was easy? If it's easy, you're not doing it right. And I've kind of learned from experience that that's, for me anyway, that's the truth. And I always know if I'm gonna be in trouble, it's because I've got complacent and lazy. You know, and sometimes you can be on a job and you know, you kind of get your feet under the desk and you kind of feel okay and da da da. And then one day you kind of come in and you just haven't done, I haven't done my work, you know, whatever that means. Um, and boy, do I know it. You know, like as soon as we do the first rehearsal, I'm like, you beep, 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 you haven't done your work. And I will like take myself off. And even if it's like for 30 seconds or two minutes or something, I'll take myself off to a quiet corner of the stage or something and just get my head in the game. I cannot, like, I can't do the text, 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 camera turns over, text, 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 phone in pocket scene. I can't do that. And, um, and to be honest, there are occasions, believe me, when I'm like, oh, it would make my life so much easier. But actually in my heart of hearts, I'm glad I'm not that kind of actor because... You know, we're, we're uh, again, without like, you know, over playing this, but we're lucky. We get to, we get to, you know, we earn a living doing a thing we do for nothing. And uh, 
you know, and when it's when it's good, it's amazing. So why would you like? Why would you willingly compromise it? I don't understand. Sure. You know, why would you not try and? It's like chasing a high or something. What you know? What is your process as an actor? Are you in character from the time you walk on set? Do you remain in character the whole time? Uh, so I do not kind of adhere to the Daniel Day Lewis school of acting. He can do whatever the hell he wants. He's like a god. <laughs> but I don't. I don't do that. I must admit, on this project, I mean, I've done a lot of accents before. I've even done American accents. But this time, uh, I actually maintain the accent when I wasn't in character. Um, you know, if you're doing like a Polish accent or a German accent or, a, you know, with the greatest respect, it's unlikely that someone in Wisconsin is going to go, that's not an authentic German accent. Yeah. But if you're doing an American accent for an American audience, so I suddenly kind of, I got, you know, I was on, I think I was on the plane. <laughs> I think I was flying over here and I thought, oh my God, I think I better st stick with the accent. So I did. And initially kind of felt like a bit of an idiot for doing it, but then thought, no, just don't like, this isn't about, this isn't about you. Just stick with it. And if it's helpful, keep doing it. If you find it's not helpful, then stop doing it. So that was my concession on this job. Um, my process is, so what I've learned is I'm quite kind of cerebral. And what I've kind of learned is that unless, you know, unless the character is kind of very kind of physical and very kind of wild and very has that has a kind of tempestuous energy. Um, you know, my brain will want to get involved and a brain actually isn't necessarily a good thing in an actor. I'm not saying you want actors to be stupid, but overly cerebral is not necessarily a good thing because it can be kind of restricted, it can kind of like be a block, like literally a mental block. So what I've learned over time is that essentially I have to kind of it's like kind of feeding the animals. I have to like throw a bone to my brain so that it's kind of sated. And then my brain can kind of quietly sit in a corner chewing on this bone I've thrown it and then kind of let the playful side of me like have the space and, and kind of do what I... So it's a sort of... Uh, so I do do quite a lot of research and I do... Like if you see my script, it's covered in notes. And I've cross, I've written things and then like looked at it again and gone, no, where the hell did you get that from? It's crossed out. I've like underlined, blah, blah, blah. I've like circled stuff. I've like put question marks. And so... And that's part of the kind of truthfulness thing. If I don't know why, I, why my character is saying a line, I can't say it with authenticity and honesty and da-da-da. So I do for myself, I have to kind of track. I have to track through moments, through speeches, through scenes, through the entire story of the character. So it's informed in something real. Uh, I'm, I can't, again, it would make my life so much easier if I could just be a talking head and do it credibly and without naming names. I suspect that there are one or two very wealthy, very famous, award-winning actors and actresses who I think they do that. Because on occasion you see them, you know, having to play really tough emotional stuff and you kind of go, what the hell are you doing? Are, are you just making a face and pretending to cry? Oh, my God. Um, anyway, uh, that's, that's my kind of bitchiness done. Um, but so, uh, yeah. So my process is quite thorough, really, um, and quite detailed. But I do that in order that I can then... I had a great teacher at drama school who said, look, we do all of this stuff, and some of it's kind of like quite embarrassing, like standing in a circle of chairs and finding each line on a specific chair. For blah, blah, blah. But anyway, you, she said, look, we do all of this stuff in rehearsal. It's like theatre school, obviously. We do all this stuff in rehearsal in order for you to be able to leave it off stage. 
She said, for God's sake, don't take any of this stuff on stage. You cannot be standing on stage in the middle of a speech going, yeah, which chair was that line on again? No, no, no. This is all the prep so that when you kind of come, when you get on court and you have to hit the ball, you know, Roger Federer isn't kind of going, no, forehand, forehand, forehand. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, right. Left leg forward, transfer my weight, bring my racket from left. No, he's just hitting the ball instinctively. But that doesn't mean he didn't spend thousands of hours going, right, so what do I do again? Oh, yeah, left foot forward. So acting is actually very similar, I think, in my experience. You do all that practice. And I was talking to someone about this on this job, probably Rolandra, I suppose, because I don't know who else it would have been. But, um, you know, we were saying that, like, in television, in theatre, you get weeks of rehearsal. Like, it's laid on. It's baked into the whole process. Uh, Great. You don't get that on very rarely on television and even on film. You know, you might rehearse for five minutes if you're lucky you'll rehearse for 20 minutes or something and i need the rehearsal i need it and again through bitter experience i've learned well look no one's going to do it for you sunshine so i essentially do my own rehearsal prior to arriving on set to play each scene because that's part of my process is the rehearsal and if i ain't going to get it on set well then i damn well better do it in my hotel room or whatever so that's part of that's a very important part of my process is essentially simulating what would have been an hour in a rehearsal room with a director and the other actors and that doesn't mean it kind of becomes set in stone i'm always there's nothing i like better than for someone to come in and go okay i see what you're doing there but how about this i may turn around and go yes sorry that just does not connect with me but most of the time i'll be like oh okay yeah that's quite interesting i hadn't thought of that oh good i like direction i like being directed So, so you've done all this work this prep um you've rehearsed in your hotel room you come on stage and obviously it's different from uh, a theater stage so director comes and says we're running 20 seconds behind we need to pick up the pace 20 seconds but or, <laughs> we uh, we need to pick up the pace on this um so where does all that emotion and all that prep go right well so again um i'm now i now understand that what you have to expect is the director to come on and go, yeah, sorry, we're running behind, so let's just get on with it. So I want you to stand here and you to stand here. And then it would just really help me with my composition of this shot if you could move over to the table on this line. And Now, of course... You know, I'm not going to just move around like an automaton. If some of that stuff doesn't work for me, I'm going to say to him, look, I understand you need me to get to the table. Just give, you, give me, just let me run it once and I'll figure out where I can move to the table, where that impulse makes sense for me. And, you know, and you, <laughs> you're pretty much just going to have to eat it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, uh, but sometimes I remember doing a job in the UK with this wonderful British actress and we kind of, it was a classic scenario where at the end of the day, we literally got like 40 minutes to shoot this two page scene, just, you know, where you don't want to be. And they shot, I was on one side of it and there were three or four characters on the other and they shot on the three or four characters first. And then they turned around to me and it was like, it's five to eight in the evening. Sorry, Ed, it's literally five minutes to eight. So we'll do like a rolling take, which means we turn over the camera I did the scene once, we don't cut the camera. The director says, okay, everyone just go back to their first positions. I go outside and get ready to come in through the door again or whatever. We're still turning, we're still turning, okay, and action. And you do a second take, do the scene twice, this for the second time on the same take. And I did it the second time, they went, okay, cut, thank you, that's a wrap. And I remember this actress saying, oh God, I'm so glad they weren't on me for that because I hate that. And even though like in a crisis, like a domestic crisis, like if one of my children gets hurt or something, I'm hopeless. My wife is amazing. She kind of goes into this just kind of like 
alpha place and just scoops us all up. On In that situation on a set, actually, weirdly, I kind of do go into this very sort of focused place. So I'm not, ne- I'm actually not necessarily freaked out by someone going, yeah, sorry, we're running really late. We don't have enough time to do the scene. So if you could just nail it, that would be good. Probably in part also because like, if you don't nail it, then you can always just turn around and go, well, what did you think I was going to do? You yeah. know, you give me five minutes to do a two-page. What do you think was going to happen? So in some respects, maybe it's because the pressure's off. But yeah, I'm kind of okay. I'm sort of all right with that. So, I mean, you sound so passionate and sound driven. You sound like you love your craft. Could you sidestep a career in acting? I mean, your father is the famous Tom Stoppard. There is a, there is a degree of separation, thankfully, between me and my dad. My dad's actually not a very good actor. <laughs> but then I'm not a very good writer. Um... Uh, he's a, he's kind of great raconteur, but I once saw him reading in some some of the player from Rosencrantz yeah. for this platform at the National Theatre in London for like the 50th anniversary or something, and he read in with um, Ted Petherbridge and Johnny Stride, who were the original Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in 1967, and uh, he was like well, he was just reading. Yeah, he wasn't even attempting to act it, which was probably right. Um, in terms of could I sorry. so essentially, so I did quite a lot of acting when I was a kid at school. And here's the deal, basically. Uh, I realized later, but at the time was unaware, it was what I wanted to do. But I was terrified of doing it. Um, I mean, acting still scares me sometimes. Um, And uh, when I went to university, university is a fantastic place for just ignoring big life choices that are staring you in the face. So I went to university and I studied, had a great time. And I didn't do any acting at university because I was like, yeah, yeah, you're not going to do that. You're not going to do that. Um, And then as soon as I left university and, you know, people started saying, what are you going to do? And it kind of hit me like a thunderbolt. Can I swear? I can't swear. I won't swear. There's no need to swear. Uh, I said, gosh, uh, I want to be an actor. That's not quite true. I said, gosh, I need to try to be an actor. I suddenly sort of with kind of blinding clarity that, uh, a sort of vision of myself lying on my deathbed, having you know spent a lifetime as a chartered accountant, and the regret of never having tried, of never having an answer to that question, could I have done it? Could I have been an actor? And so as soon as I sort of had that vision, I thought, oh, oh, damn, well, you better apply for drama school, hadn't you, sunshine? Which I then did. And, you know, I've been remarkably fortunate to have... A career and to be able to earn a living from doing it but actually you know my dad it was the opposite rather than feeling um any kind of compulsion to follow my dad into the theater or the arts actually one of the things that um made me hesitant was and to be honest this happened for many years it's basically stopped now but for many many years i'd walk onto sets uh you know particularly on my first day or something and, you know, the f- sort of first AD or whatever would kind of come up and say, Tom, hi, I love it. And sometimes they'd notice, oh, God, I'm so sorry, Ed. And sometimes they wouldn't. They'd just keep calling me Tom for the rest <laughs> of the day or something until eventually I'd say, that, that's my dad, I'm Ed. And, um, but, you know, if, if I have lived in my dad's shadow, it's actually because I stepped into it as opposed to it being cast on me. You know, my dad is appalled at the thought that I might feel this kind of albatross around my neck. Um, uh, And I've kind of dealt with it now over the years. And as I say, sort of, you know, 
very rarely do people call me Tom. And if they do it, it really is a kind of slip of the tongue. So, so I kind of came into acting despite my dad, is the truth. That's great. So what do you like when you're not in front of a camera or not in front of an audience? What do you spend your days doing? I'm quite dull, actually. Uh, I really am quite dull. Uh, so I have an amazing wife and three amazing daughters. Um, and I, you know, when I'm not, the thing is, so I've been here for seven weeks. That's a long time to be away from your family. So when I'm at home, I really like to be a dad and a husband. So I like getting the kids to school. I like kind of making dinner for them. I like walking the dog. I like changing light bulbs. I like putting up shelves badly. I like doing all that. Like my greatest pleasure is mowing the lawn. Like I feel, you know, I really do feel like an Englishman in his castle when I mow my lawn. You know, the combination of that evocative smell of cut grass, which takes me back to kind of happy English summers playing cricket as a kid or whatever. And just the kind of, you know, the satisfaction of a job well done or something. I, it's, I'm really mundane, really mundane. You know, when I go into London, I live on the edge of London. And when I get the train into the centre of London for a meeting or something, I mean, I ever so slightly do that kind of tourist thing of like looking up at the tall buildings. I mean, it's like when I go into Soho in central London, I'm like, woo, Soho. God, it's so exciting. Um, so, yeah, I just, I, you know, I read and I... God, I don't know, listen to music and do odd jobs and da-da-da-da-da and whatever. I, I, it's so mundane, honest to goodness. I can't tell you. So where where are you from here? What is your next project? Uh, I am doing something. Can I say I'm doing it? I don't know if I can. Well, if you say you are, then they will give you the job. No, they've already given it to me. <laughs> they've already given it to me. I'm doing, I'm doing an adaptation of, a, of an iconic British novel uh, from the kind of middle of the 20th century. And I have to, I'm so excited to do it because, you know, I read this book as a teenager, I guess. Um, probably feeling quite kind of pleased with myself because it was sort of a grown-up book. And... It will, and I, having you know read the scripts, I think it's going to be incredible. I think it's going to be incredible, actually, and it's extremely resonant for these times we're in. It was, it was so resonant at the time, and in a kind of extraordinary way, it's as resonant now. Um, so that's what I'm doing, and I begin quickly. I mean, I'm going to be. I'm going to, I get home in a few days. <clears throat> and next week, you know, I'll be doing makeup and costume fittings and onwards. You know, some, sometimes it works that way. Sometimes you're twiddling your thumbs for four months and you kind of try not to go out of your mind. Anyway, so I'm doing that. You, listen, you can Google and if it comes up, then, then you could say the thing he was referring to was this. I've just Googled it. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I'm not sure it's been announced yet. I don't, I don't think my involvement has been announced yet. So, uh, Just one last question, which I forgot, I forgot yeah. to ask earlier is... Did you know a lot about rhino poaching and conservation and that kind of thing before coming into this project? Or did you kind of learn on the fly? Uh, I think I was probably kind of... I knew as much as the sort of average, you know, conscientious, well-informed, concerned member of the human race might know. Um, obviously, I knew it was an enormous problem 
that the rhino population was teetering on the brink, uh, that conservation efforts were absolutely critical to the survival of certain rhino species. I mean, I think very recently, you know, the last male, was it, I can't remember, northern black rhino or something, died in captivity, and they were kind of hoping to preserve the DNA so that maybe they could continue the, the species. So, yes, I mean, I think unless you, you know, live at the bottom of a hole, yes, you are aware, aware of it. I wasn't so aware of the kind of minutiae, um, but... You know, I think it's, I'm really glad that that is a kind of fundamental part of our storyline to give it more prominence. It's one of those, it's one of those parts of our lives that can never have enough prominence, um, of which, of course, there are many. But, but, you know, the state of the rhino and actually, you know, oh, am I going to, I'll never work, I'll never work in the Far East again. I, you know, it's one of those things where I'm like, seriously seriously we all know why they're we all know why they cut the horns off the rhinos we all know why they're killing the rhinos we all know why they're cutting off the horns you know it's for like it's for the handles of daggers and it's for medicine we all know that and in fairness i think maybe the handles of the daggers are being made of like bone now or some synthetic substance so apologies to the guys with daggers if if you no longer buy rhino horn but someone's buying the rhino horn, and if it isn't them, it's probably Chinese medicine or something. And it's like, please, please. It's like the Renaissance never happened. Mm. And it's kind of, it, what gets me, what really upsets me, it's the hubris. It's the hubris that fuels this kind of thing. It's kind of like, you know, in Japanese and whaling and stuff. It's like, research vessel, give me a break. It's like, okay, look. It used to be part of the culture in England where women who had warts on their noses would be ducked in the village pond, okay? But we don't do that anymore. It was part of our culture. It's no longer part of our culture. You used to eat whale meat. Just don't eat whale meat. You know, you used to grind up rhino horn to cure your impotence, but now we have Viagra. So don't... I'll never work in the Far East again. Um, <laughs> but it gets me. It really gets me because, you know, you can kind of put the probably the ills of the entire planet at the feet of human arrogance. Mm -hmm. And if people would just get over themselves, just like take a check on themselves, you can edit all this out. But, and of course, it's, it it's just really big money. Me. I mean, it's uh, big money as well. Yeah, of course, that's true. Yeah, great, exactly. Mm. <laughs> Which just makes it doubly bad. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, and like, and in fairness, The guys, the actual people killing the rhinos are living off a dollar a day. Let's say they're living off two dollars a day because they kill rhinos. It's actually not those guys. I wish those guys wouldn't kill the rhinos. But who's to say if I didn't have a family to feed and, you know, there were very, very few opportunities for me to give them even the basics. Who's to say that if some guy didn't, you know, gave me an AK-47 and went, I'll give you 10 US dollars if you kill a rhino. Who's to say I wouldn't kill a rhino? Uh, but it's the guys at the other end. It's the guys buying it and the guys shipping it. It's like, just retrain, do something else. Great. Ed Stoppard, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been a real treat. It's been a pleasure, Terence. Thank you for having me.